You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Hey, good morning. We are a family that just does with, rolls with the punches, so good to, good to see you all. Really, I'm glad that you're here. Um, if you are new, my name is Justin, so I want to introduce myself. I'm the associate pastor here at Midtown. Would love the chance to meet you, so come say hi afterward. I would like to meet, I see some new faces, so I would love to, the chance to actually get to know you. Before we jump into the sermon, though, I did want to make a few quick, like, family announcements. There's a couple things going on in the life of our church that I wanted to make sure that you guys knew about. Uh, the first is one that I'm really excited about. We have about 15 people that the last two weeks have been going through our partnership class here at Midtown. Par- partnership is what we use that word for membership, but we've got about 15 people that are considering partnerships. So that's good news. Those are things that, if you're here early, you see it and you know it, but I know a lot of you don't know that because you're already partners, but let's be glad that God's growing our church and people are interested in becoming partners. Yeah, that should be something. Yeah, thanks. That was not what I was going for. Second um, thing is that I wanted to let you know that we had a great time this week. We have uh, every semester we do like a night of prayer where we pray together as a church. So this last Wednesday, we had a concert of prayer at Hyde Park Presbyterian Church. It's a really fun time of prayer, praying outwardly focused prayers. We prayed for the nations. We prayed for our city. And we actually commissioned all of us, and even many of you who weren't there, we actually prayed for you. Almost everyone in our church we prayed for by name, that God would use them to be his light in the various parts of the city where we live, work, and play. And so if you weren't there, know that you were prayed for, and that that was a really special time of prayer. I hope that you kind of make these a priority as we do these once a semester, because just dedicating a night together to pray is really important, and it was really fun, too. God met us when we were there. Third and last uh, family announcement is you may have heard a few weeks ago that we were going to have Baptism Sunday this next Sunday, but it turns out that we didn't have anyone that was, was ready to be baptized or eager to be baptized. So if you were coming expecting that next week, know that we're not doing that. And I also want to say that we don't just have, we set some in advance, like we set some Baptism Sundays in advance just so that people can begin to think about it if it's a step that they want to take. But anytime anyone wants to be baptized, we will make a Baptism Sunday the next Sunday. So you can tell us, like, if there's ever a time that you feel like you want to make that step and be baptized, let us know, and that will be Baptism Sunday uh, whenever it works for you. And so let us know. We're excited about that. We're going to jump back into James. We've been doing James here for many weeks now, moving into chapter four today. And if you haven't been following, uh, maybe you've missed a few weeks, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast because it's really, um, James is a really unique book that it just kind of feeds upon itself. Like each passage, each part just feeds into the next. And so it's really fun if you can get a whole glimpse of the book by going back and listening. And perhaps this week's uh, sermon, uh, James 4, 1 through 10, is probably like one of the strongest links back to chapter 3. So I'm actually going to start by taking us back to chapter 3 and do a very simple uh, explanation of the things that Jake did a great job sharing last week and kind of start us there, and then we're going to talk about James chapter 4. If you were here with us last week, you know that in James chapter 3, James was describing there's two types of wisdom. There's a wisdom that comes from the world, and that wisdom is the type of wisdom that says, live life to the full. You be selfish. You live for you. Do what you can for yourself. And then there's a wisdom that comes from God that says, no. Live a life of humility. Put others first. We've got these verses up here, actually, too. If you were in James chapter 3, verse 16, it says, For where you find envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So the worldly way of living, living for yourself, what it actually does is it causes disorder and every evil practice. That's where it leads. Whereas the godly wisdom, it said in James chapter 3, is different. In 17 and 18, it says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure. It's peace-loving. 
considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, and peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. When we live according to the wisdom of God, the, the one that he's given us down from heaven, putting other people first and living a life of humility, that actually leads to peace. And now we're going to get to chapter 4, and James is actually going to be pretty harsh with his people that he's writing. He's going to say, now, I've given you these two wisdoms. I'm going to tell you that you guys are living like the world. You guys are living in the worldly wisdom. And he's going to be pretty upfront and pretty harsh about what he says. So before we look at it, um, I did want to ask just, I like, I like sometimes just to ask questions, get a little participation and get your mind thinking about something. So show of hands, if you don't mind, how many of you have ever been in a conflict with someone and been hurt by them? Okay, so we've got everyone who raised their hand and we've got people who just don't like to raise their hands, but they would have. Let me ask a little, a little differently. How many of you have ever been in a conflict and you hurt someone? Same show of hands, right? So we all have been in conflicts, and so James is going to start off talking real harshly about the conflicts that are happening among them. Before we look at it, I want to say one more thing, though. Sometimes our conflicts, you know, can be so, uh, so complicated that you need like a third party. Have you ever had one of those kind of conf uh, conflicts where you need someone to come in from the outside? Could be a friend, could be a minister, could be, uh, could be a, a counselor, like going to see someone for counseling. And one of the things that good counselors or, or ministers or friends that are equipped will do to help you resolve your conflict is they will, they will try to get you to be quiet and to listen and let the other person express how you've hurt them. It's really something that they try to do. I've been there. I've done it because I've experienced that myself. I've experienced uh, conflicts with my wife, Brenda, and where when I had to sit there and actually be quiet and let her tell me how I've hurt her, you feel the weight of it when you sit there and take that in. I have a good friend named Shane, and a couple years ago we were in a conflict because of something that I said, and when he approached me to tell me about it, I felt the weight of it, and you feel the weight of it. What it does is it makes you more willing to change. I actually emailed several of my friends that are professional counselors, and I asked them about this because I didn't know if there was like a name for it, like a particular strategy of trying to get the people in conflict to do that, and they just, in a word, they said empathy. They said this is the goal, like the goal in that type of a conflict is to get someone to listen and let someone else express how they've been hurt so that you'll grow in empathy, which will make you more willing to change. In fact, one of my counselor friends, he, he actually was real honest, and he told me about his fight with pornography. And he said that, he gave me this quote, he said, I had to see the real life hurt that it was causing her, meaning his wife, and, and that, then be able to empathize in real time. That finally connected me with the sorrow that God was feeling over my sin the whole time. It sobered me up. And I was able to achieve repentance in that area of my life. So you've handled in a godly way when you just take in someone's pain, you're going to see that you're more willing and able to change. Now you're going to see in this passage that we're going to read what is going to actually happen is James is going to describe how hurt God is when we live this selfish life. And we're going to have a chance this morning to try to feel the weight of what God feels when we live in rebellion against him. So that means we need to pray. <laughs> so let me pray. Father, we uh, want to read James' very strong rebuke to his readers. Um, and we want to consider these words. And as we do, would you soften our hearts? Would you bring conviction and humility uh, to us today? Uh, speak to each person's heart and mind as only you know how to because you know the condition of everyone's heart here. So we invite you to speak to each of us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are a note taker, we're going to kind of try to answer three questions. The first one is, what is the source of our conflict? 
Second is how should we feel about it? And the third is uh, what should we do about it? So let's start with what is the source of the conflict? James 4, one through three. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God, and when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. What's the source of our conflict? He really starts it off by asking that question. Remember, we've got the, the wise, uh, the worldly way of wisdom that selfishly leads to disorder. Then there's the godly wisdom that's supposed to lead to peace. But he starts with this question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's asking, what is the source of this? And he answers it kind of with his next question. It's really meant to be the answer. Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Ultimately, the problem is you. The problem is me. And there's a spiritual war that's taking place for our hearts, for our minds, that's battling within us to, to live like selfishly, to live the way that the worldly wisdom. And that's what really causes this in us. This is from the very start. James, uh, Jake mentioned this last week, but this is so true. You just go back to the very first temptation when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the, the devil comes to them and he says, you know, what is this? God says you can't eat from these trees. And she says, no, God said that we can, we can eat from all of them except this one. And he said, well, I'll tell you why he's doing that, because he wants to keep something from you. And it says that Eve saw that the food was good for, or the, the fruit was good for food, that it was pleasing to her eye, and then she desired, it says, she desired to have what the enemy said she could have. That's the root of all temptation. It's our own desires within us that are longing for our own pleasure and believing within that God's holding something back from us. So what causes the quarrels and fights among you? It's, it's our own evil desires. The word desire there is actually really uh, could be translated lusts. So it's things that we're seeing out in the world that we're lusting after, that we want to have, that we think God's holding back from us, things that we think will please us. It's also the word that's used for hedonism, hedonism, the, the pursuit of pleasure, self-gratification. It's hedonism that's a source of all of our conflicts, that we want what we want for our own pleasure. That's what he says the source of this conflict is. And this could be many types of lust, many types of desires. It could be desire for sex. It could be desires for relationships. It could be for money, for power, for influence, for popularity, pleasure, travel, houses, cars, materialism, stuff, families, successful careers. All of these things that we think that we're going to find life in, that we pursue these pleasures, that's the source of the conflict that comes within us. It's the root of all evil in our lives. If you go back and listen to last week, I think that Jake did an incredible job describing how we live this way. And so I'm not gonna spend much time on the source here, but I will say that one of the things that James does here that I really love in the last verse here is he talks about how we can even do this in a religious way. What does he say, right? He says, you do not have because you do not ask God and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you can spend what you get on your own pleasures. You see, one way to live selfishly is to try to consume everything in the world and to, and to do what we think will give us pleasure. But there's also a way that we, as Christians and religious people, can do the same thing, where we actually are not really pursuing God, but we're after God for what he can give us. And so when God doesn't deliver and give us what we want, then we're prone to leave him. It's saying, I want all this stuff from God, but I don't actually want God. That's what James is saying they can do. You can pursue pleasure by trying to 
better your life and perfect it in a way that you think then God owes you something. And Jathan's saying, God knows your heart and he knows that you don't really want me. You want my stuff. This is the selfishness that is causing the conflict within them, which is perhaps why when you look at it that way and you think of God knowing our hearts that, that he would say what he says in this next statement about how we should feel about our self-interest and our pursuit of pleasure. Second question, how should we feel about it? He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity toward God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he's caused to dwell within us? James says a pretty harsh tone here, particularly if you look at the rest of James. Like in the rest of James, he does confront them on many things, but every time he does, he uses the words brothers and sisters. It's a very, it's a very uh, kind way of, of confronting them. Listen to this, this is all just from James. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Brothers and sisters, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, do not show favoritism. Out of the same mouth come both praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So he's, he addresses them and confronts them on many things throughout the book, but here he changes the tone and he calls them an adulterous people, now enemies of God. I believe the reason that he's trying to do this is he's trying to get them to feel the weight of what God feels when they live selfishly when they live a life apart from him. It's adultery, it's spiritual adultery. And he's not just making this up out of anywhere. James would have known the Old Testament well, and if you read the Old Testament, you're gonna see that very commonly, God refers to Israel, his people, as him pursuing them like a bride would pursue a wife, and he commonly refers to their sin as adultery. You can see it throughout, uh, particularly the prophets. You see a ton of the prophets write about God's heart in that way. In fact, you've got one prophet named Hosea that, that it's a whole metaphor. His life is a metaphor of our sin. He's been told to, to marry someone who commits adultery on them, but then continue to pursue them. And the whole time in the book, Hosea is empathizing and realizing that the pain that he's feeling is the pain that God feels when we wander from him as his bride. Jeremiah, I think, is actually the most convicting. If you were to read Jeremiah 2 through 8, 2 through 8 is Jeremiah crying out to his people, confronting them about their sin and constantly using the metaphor, speaking God's voice about the adultery the people have been committing. I'll just read a long passage for you. If you want, you can close your eyes. You can just listen. But here's what Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 2. I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through the land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of the harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, you descendants of Jacob, all you clans of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your ancestors find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, you heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. They've dug their own cisterns and broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Long ago, you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you lay down as a prostitute. 
I had planted you like a choice vine, a sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soap and use an abundance of cleansing powder, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I'm not defiled and that I've not run after other gods? See how you've behaved in the valley? Consider what you've done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind and craving, uh, sniffing the wind and her craving. In her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Not easy to hear, right? But this is God speaking through his prophet to the people of Israel and saying, this is how God sees the way that you're living for idols and pursuing other things other than me. It's adultery and it, it hurts my heart. You were this vine that I planted, this one that I picked out and I pulled for my very own. Yet you've wandered. He compares it to prostitution, to, a, to adultery, like a, a camel in heat. Like, that's pretty harsh. And I think what James is trying to do in James 4 is he's trying to tap in to that sense to get us to see the weight of our sin. He goes on in James 4 to say that he's a jealous God, that God is jealous for us, not jealously like we think of jealousy, like I want something that someone else has. God is jealous for us in the sense that he created us in relationship to be in relationship with him. He's given us a spirit, like we are the only living things that can have a relationship with God because he's given us a spirit and he's jealous to have a relationship with us. He wants what's best for us. He wants what's his glory and for our good. He's jealous for us. And I don't know about you, but when I, when I think about what James is trying to do here, this really helps me when it comes to repentance that I need in my own heart. Because I find, uh, at least for me, my personality, maybe you're the same. If I look at God as a disappointed father, that's sometimes the way that I tend to look at God, like a disappointed father when I sin, that usually doesn't help me or motivate me. I feel more distance. I feel like I want to run away, or I often feel like then I've got to earn my way back by doing certain things. But if I see God as more of a jilted lover, someone who loves me, like as his bride, who's pursuing me and wants this relationship with me, like that moves me. That makes me more willing to say, yes, God, I'm coming back to you because I know you love me. And that motivates me to know that I've hurt the heart of God. He wants heartfelt repentance, which is where he turns next as we answer our third question. What should we do about it? Thank God so much for this next verse. In verse six, James, after he just called them adulterers, says, but he gives us more grace. This is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Thank God for that verse. God gives us more grace. Let's praise God and let that sink in. That Just after saying this, he comes right back with God gives us more grace. I like the way that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter five about this grace of God and how he turns people who are enemies into his friends because of what he's done through Jesus. He says in Romans five eleven, for if while we were God's enemies, we are reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, also grace might reign through righteousness and bring eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. 
where grace, where sin increases, grace increases. God continues to provide more grace and he's welcoming us back. He even says in this next verse, he's quoting from Proverbs and this proverb that says, but God opposes the proud but gives favor or really that can be translated, God gives grace to the humble. Like all this may be true, we may be wandering, we may be wandering from him and, and, and God sees it and it hurts his heart because it feels like adultery to him. Yet even then, God's grace is stronger, God's grace is more and he welcomes us back and he says and he promises, God will give grace to the humble. So the question is, how do we humble ourselves? And that's what James is gonna explain how to do it. He's gonna give them a couple ideas about, hey, you wanna humble yourselves? You wanna come back to receive God's grace? Then here is what you should do. Three things he says. He tells them to resist, to draw near, and to confess. First, he says resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So how do you humble yourselves? You, you resist. You admit that you have these selfish tendencies and you name them. And you say, here is what I'm struggling with and I'm going to resist. I'm gonna ask God for strength to resist. You're gonna do the hard work of getting to the root of what your sin issue is because it's not just stopping things sometimes. What you have to do sometimes is peel back the onion and there's layers and layers of reasons behind whatever behavior you need to repent from. You're gonna do the hard work and resist. And I love it that there's a promise because if you resist, it's a promise that the devil will flee from you. You want a great memory verse when it comes to resistance? I would, I would recommend this one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you or overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God's faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will provide a way out that you can endure it. Part of resistance is believing this truth that there's no temptation that you can't overcome, that God has given you his Holy Spirit and you can resist temptation. You can learn how to. This is a promise. God's not gonna let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He's going to provide a way out for it. But resistance requires the hard work of learning how to fight that. Second thing he says is draw near. This is the second way you humble yourselves. Draw near to God. And the promise associated with this one is that he will draw near to you when you draw near to him. What a great promise. So you gotta draw near to God. I don't know about you, but like I said about myself, when I feel like I have wandered from God in certain ways or, or committed a sin, one of the things I do is I feel like I have to run from God. Like it's not natural for me to want to draw near to him because I think I have to jump through some hoops or something and kind of get back my, in his favor or something like that. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, no, what you do to humble yourselves is you resist and then you, you come near to God. Like God invites you to come. His grace is there. He's inviting you to draw near and come close to him. When you combine resisting and drawing near, that's where you're gonna start to see the change and the victory. One of my favorites I go to, another verse worth memorizing is Hebrews chapter four, when it says this about drawing near to God. Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who ascended into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What kind of throne is it? It's a throne of grace. We're allowed to approach it and receive grace and mercy because of what Jesus has done for us. He's provided access for us to come near to God even when we come near with confession. We draw near to God. That's one of the ways that we humble ourselves. And finally, we humble ourselves by confessing. We humble ourselves by confessing what, what James would describe as washing your hands and purifying your hearts. Confession just simply means agreeing with God. 
It doesn't mean you're doing some penance or you're doing some acts that make you get back in his favor. Confession is simply agreeing with God that you have sinned. So it's coming back to him. It's resisting. It's drawing near. And then it's coming back with confession to say, yes, God, here is my struggle. Here's what I've done. Confession is just agreeing with God concerning your sin. And one of the verses I always go to for this is 1 John 8, 1, 8, and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What a promise. It's not that we have to do something to try to cleanse ourselves, even though James is saying, cleanse your your hands and cleanse your heart. It's going to God and asking God to be the one that would cleanse you. Just simply confessing and God will do the cleansing. I grew up and uh, came to faith through uh, Campus Crusades movement in high school. And one, this is one of the very first verses that the guy who led me to the Lord taught me. He, he, he called this thing, he used this term called spiritual breathing. And he said, you know, you can't claim that you're not going to sin. Like, like this verse says, like, you're going to continue to fail. You're going to try to resist and you're going to draw near, but you're still going to fall short. And when you do, all you need to do is keep, he called it short accounts with God, where you just keep coming back to God and you confess it. Agree to what sin was and ask him to purify your heart. He called it spiritual breathing. He said, just like when you breathe and you breathe out the bad, the carbon dioxide, and then you breathe in the good, the oxygen, that's what you do when you confess your sins. You're just telling God and you're, you're confessing the bad and you're asking him again to fill you with his Holy Spirit. And that's a simple thing that I've practiced through my whole life since I came to faith uh, when I was 14 years old because the guy that led me to faith told me, this is what you have to do on a regular basis. It's part of how we humble ourselves. We resist, we draw near, we confess. But he adds one little caveat here at the end. He says he really wants it to be heartfelt. That brings us to the last kind of description. It needs to be heartfelt confession. He uses the words that we should grieve and mourn and wail, change our laughter to crying and our joy to gloom. Now, this doesn't mean that that you're not repentant if you don't have tears. (laughs) He's not saying that. It's not about the actual, you have to cry tears, but he's saying your, your heart has to be in this. Like, come back to God. The way you humble yourselves is when you come back to him, you come back in a heartfelt way. You, you recognize that you've been adulterous and you come back repentant with your heart. You're grieving, you're mourning, you're wailing. This is not an uh, unfamiliar term uh, in the New Testament. It's something called godly sorrow. In uh, Paul's letter to the, second, to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, he's referencing back to something that he wrote in 1 Corinthians. Because kind of like James writes his readers with a little bit of uh, confrontation, Paul actually wrote the Corinthian church and really pointed out a couple things that they were doing that was against God. And he was kind of scared when he did it because he didn't know how they were going to take it, if they were going to receive it and, and turn back, back from it and humble themselves like, like he wanted, or if they were just going to pass it off and not accept his rebuke. But then he writes back in 2 Corinthians after he heard that they actually responded well, that they did humble themselves. And here's what he says about this letter that he wrote them. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. And now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led to repentance. You became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings about repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness, what's to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this manner. Paul's saying this letter that I wrote, it, it must have stung. 
I didn't know what was going to happen with it, but, but I saw that you guys had this godly sorrow. Just like we talked about, there's a worldly sorrow or a worldly wisdom and a godly wisdom. The same is true of sorrow. There can be a worldly sorrow and there can be a godly sorrow. The big difference between the two is what you're grieving about. What often happens with worldly sorrow is you're grieving that you got caught or you're grieving about the consequences that you're gonna suffer because of what you've done and how you've hurt someone or what you've done. You're not grieving about who you've hurt. That's the difference. Godly sorrow is about who you've hurt, both the people and namely God himself. That's what godly sorrow is and that's what James is calling them to. He's saying grieve, mourn and well, come back. Grieve not because of the consequences. Grieve not because you got caught. Grieve because you hurt God. It's about godly sorrow. He thankfully makes one more great promise here at the end, again related to humility. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. I love that this is scattered just with all these promises. <laughs> He's saying if you do this, God's gonna lift you up like it's a promise. This is the nature and the heart of God that if you humble yourselves, he's going to lift you right back up. I thought that I'd close today by actually telling a story, one of my favorites in the Old Testament, where I think sometimes we need, like we've got James' words and they say, here's how you humble yourselves, but sometimes we need like an example. Like I wanna, I wanna see someone do it. And the story of King Josiah is an incredible story. You can read about in 2 Kings 22, 23. And here's a guy who became a king when he was eight. <laughs> so a very young king. But it says that he had godly influences around him that helped him learn how to walk with God at a young age. And as a king, he started this huge renovation project where he was actually gonna redo the temple because the temple had been kind of war-torn and come under ruin and was not being used properly. This is a really bad time in, in Judah's history. But here is the king of Judah. He says, we've got to fix this temple back up and begin to worship God again. And one of the things that happens when they're actually, he's got his people in there trying to do this renovation and clean out the temple, they actually stumble upon the book of the law. So they stumble upon God's word, which I'm picturing it dusty and buried and having not been written for decades. And so these guys find the book and they say, hey, look what we found. And they bring it back to Josiah and listen to the way that Josiah responds here in 2 Kings. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes, and he gave orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, son of Shephan, Akbor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people of Judah about what's written in this book that's been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those uh, who have gone before us and not obeyed the words of this book, they've not acted in accordance with what is written there concerning us. Amazing. He hears the word of God for the first time. This first thing he does, this was kind of a thing that they did in their days to kind of express uh, horror or shock. He tore his robe. The equivalent of like crying or, or just grieving, saying, oh my gosh, here's this word of God. And oh, he all of a sudden realized all the ways they had been rebellious and all the things they had done. And he was broken because of it. And he says, go seek someone and in, in see what we can do about this. And so he actually sends them to go speak to a prophetess named Hulda. And so they go to this prophetess and they, they tell the whole story. They say, hey, hey, here's what happened. We found this book. Will you seek God for us and tell us what God might have us do now that we found this and we realize how guilty we are? So here's what Hulda tells them. It says, tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord. This is, uh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says concerning the words you've heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself. Before the Lord, when you heard what I have spoken against this place and this people, 
that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I've also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will not be buried, or you will, will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Let those phrases seek in because I think it's a perfect picture of what it means to humble ourselves. He says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourselves. Like a big part of what it means to humble ourselves is means that we would submit ourselves to God's word. That when, when God's word speaks to our hearts, we humble ourselves under it. We repent and we say, this is, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna submit myself to God because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself and because you tore your robes in my presence. And God fulfilled his promise. God will lift up those who humble themselves and God lifted Josiah up because he was humble. If you're to go on and read, he actually does some pretty incredible things because after this, he starts doing a whole cleansing of the nation and, and tearing down idols and, and being a big revival to all of Judah. I'll just read a few of the verses so you can get a glimpse about what Josiah did as God began to lift him up after his humility. In chapter 23, the king called together the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord and, they, and, and with all the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Then the king stood by the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep all of his commands and statutes and decrees with all his heart and his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book that all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. This is humility, guys. Here's a guy who heard God's word, submitted himself under it, and called others to do the same. And he gathers all of Judah, and they come back and they, they re-covenant themselves to obey God's word. If you go on reading throughout the rest of it, yeah, like I said, he goes out through all the land and starts tearing down all the idols and all the little worship places they, they had set up. He actually finishes this work on the temple that they were doing the renovation project, and he actually institutes the holy holidays again and all of the temple worship. This, what started as an eight-year-old king and began to seek God and humbled himself under God's word. That's an example of what humility looks like, what it looks like for us to humble ourselves before the Lord. An application today in this time of worship that we have here uh, in a moment, I just want to ask you to examine your heart. Like, I, I would bet that if you're like me, God spoke something in your heart that stirred, that said, yeah, here's a place where I've been wandering in an adulterous way, and I recognize now that God's heart is hurt by this, and I'm going to do the very thing that James said to do. I'm going to humble myself by resisting, by drawing near to God right now, and by confessing. As we take communion, it's a great time to confess and confess and remember that Jesus has paid it for you. You can draw near to God because of what Christ has done for us. It's always open. It's a throne of grace that he's given us. We can humble ourselves because Jesus was the perfect example of humbling himself. He humbled himself, as Philippians 2 says, to the point of death on a cross for you and for me. He humbled himself. I'd hope in this time of worship, that you would just do business with God however you feel led. We do have the Tolanders, Greg and uh, Kristen are gonna be back in the back. They're available as prayer partners. They'd love the chance to pray with you. Um, and that's even something that you can do. You can confess not just to God, but you can confess to others. That's a really helpful thing to do because you need other brothers and sisters in Christ to help you resist and to call you to draw near. 
Let's do those things today as we sing these songs. Do your own business with God. and Take whatever step toward humbling yourself you need to do. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would renew our hearts and you would do that cleansing and purifying in our midst today. We confess that we are selfish people, that we are prone to live for ourselves and to pursue worldly pleasures, to, to be hedonists. We don't want to be that way. We know that you have offered better life than, like Jeremiah said, there's, there's a cistern that you've given us that you're the living water that can fill. We can't make our own broken cisterns. So we pray that today would grieve, mourn, and well, return to you and commit to resist, draw near and confess. We thank you most of all that you have made a way for us to continue to come back to you. We, we dwell on that phrase that James so wonderfully put, but God gives more grace. We're going to sing now and celebrate that grace. As we do, God, bring us uh, freedom uh, from anything that binds us. Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.